You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hey there everyone and welcome to TechFan, this is TechFan number 67 and uh, today I'm not joined by Tim as I normally am, um, I was missing last week and Tim wasn't able to do a show this week so instead I have uh, my good friend Tom Schmidt on the line, hi Tom Hi David How are things with you? Okay, a nice sunny morning here in Minnesota and thankfully it's been a winter without a whole lot of snow yeah, it does seem to have been, it's been, we had a couple of weeks here, but then it's been mild ever since. So, um, and today it's kind of overcast and cloudy, but still fairly warm for winter, which is nice. You you do realise you've created a big mistake by talking to an English guy about the weather, because <laughs> this could go for some time. <laughs> you're, you're in what, Manchester? Manchester, yeah. Right, right in the middle of uh, of the UK. So that's northwest of London. It is, yeah. It's about two hundred miles. Not a bad guess. Yeah, it's uh, it's a nice part of the world actually. You know, you have a lot of that kind of city feel, and yet you could be out in the country in pretty short order, and it's not quite as hectic as London is. London, everyone's very pushy and busy, and you know, mad. So, uh, in fact, I have to go to London tomorrow, so I'm not not really looking forward to that, to be honest. So I suppose London's probably a little bit more cosmopolitan, like New York, and then well, Manchester. I mean, it isn't. It isn't really. I mean, cosmopolitan. I mean, the UK because we're, it's much smaller is much more multicultural um, than than parts of the US. So in terms of cosmopolitan, the kind of meeting different types of people, you can get that pretty much anywhere. Certainly in the in ah. the cities, but um, you certainly do have more. Um, more tourists, more foreigners working in bars and that sort of thing in London, and it's just a much bigger place, you know. But mm-hmm. it, it is kind of, it, it does have that kind of frantic capital city feel that a place like New York has as well, um, which can be, uh, it can be a bit of a culture shock after you've been, you know, when you could, when you just come in, as I say, as I'm, I'm going down tomorrow, and, and uh, you kind of get a bit annoyed by the fact you've got to push your way everywhere because nobody will move out your way or open a door or, you know, Everyone will just cut you up because that's just big city life. But uh, you know, what can you do? But I'm guessing, I'm guessing where you are, like me, you can probably get out to the country within ten minutes. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm virtually on the edge of the country here as it is. I'm just right, I'm right on the very northern edge of kind of the Manchester suburbs. And once you go up from here, then it becomes uh, a lot more rural fairly, very, very quickly. Okay. So uh, that's nice, you know. It's- it's nice to be surrounded by a bit of greenery and a bit of open space rather than having the, the, the buildings pressing in on you. Mm. 
So, um, one of the things that I thought we could talk about today, because uh, listening to the shows that I've missed the last couple of weeks, uh, Tim's not really had time or inclination to talk about this, but uh, obviously there's been big developments in the Windows space. Uh, Microsoft is working very hard on Windows 8, and uh, you know normally a, a Windows release would be like, you know, <laughs> who cares? But uh, do you do you have to use Windows much? I, I know you, I know you work in a kind of Apple tech shop, so do you come across it at all? Well, I'm the Windows guy. All right, okay. Um, and I'm a Parallels beta tester, so um, I use that not quite daily, but close to it. Yeah, and and for my my own view, in my company, my company is a Windows company. I'm I persistently use Macs on my desk and as a, as my laptop whenever I can get away with it but there are some systems we operate that that you really have to have windows for um and our our copy of exchange that we run is is old enough that I can't use the latest version of the Mac Outlook client for it so I I I need windows for that too so I'm also a parallels user and um you know I came from a windows background originally so I know windows pretty well too uh, and uh, you know that's that, that's a good and bad thing. You you appreciate how it's improved over the years, and it certainly has improved an awful lot. But you still see some of the things that continue to hold it back. Um, so oh well, yeah, yeah. When, when Windows three one, you couldn't get it to work at all without tweaking it first. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, yeah, I mean, Windows three one was basically a shell, wasn't it? It was running on top of mm-hmm. DOS, and yep. you had to get DOS configured right, which um, to do involved typing all sorts of commands into batch files and, you know, working and configuring out memory settings and an awful lot of trial and error as well. You know, I remember having to reboot machines five or six times just to get the right memory configuration that I needed for a particular application. Um, and Windows didn't really help with any of that. No, it didn't. No, it was, I mean, it wasn't integrated at all until 95. And, and even 95, there was a little bit of smoke and mirrors. It was still running a kind of a cut-down version of DOS underneath. It wasn't really until probably Windows 2000 that uh, they really they really got away from that and kind of re-architected what was going on underneath. And one of the problems with Windows is that deep down it's still like that. Um, you know, it's been changed over the years and they've moved bits and pieces of it around, but the architecture underneath is still um, that same architecture that Dave Cutler came up with for Windows NT um, and that has caused them some problems over the years in terms of security and also performance and one of the advantages that Apple's always had over um, Microsoft is that they've been you know as we've seen with the latest version of Lion and, and then now coming up with Mountain Lion is they've always been prepared to cut compatibility and draw a line beyond a certain date to say well your old stuff it just isn't going to work anymore because we've rebuilt the system underneath um, and that's something that Microsoft have historically not wanted to do, um, and that has that's led to a very bloated and fairly complicated product because there's normally about four or five different ways of of doing things. So um, I don't know that they've been able to get away from that stuff because the enterprise would just howl if they tried. Well, I. I... You know, working with some guys who do enterprise support, because obviously I, you know, we have our own internal IT team 
um, and then I, I'm an IT consultant, so I'm regularly talking to clients and dealing with the IT teams and clients. I, I, I Sometimes I wonder whether that is overblown a little bit. I mean, they, they will howl when anything changes, um, but there's there's not many people I see nowadays who are still running you know, anything before XP, um, and there are various ways of, of supporting legacy applications now without having embedded support baked into the operating system. The virtualization is now well established and the very way that you and I run Windows on our Macs is completely virtual. So there's no real reason why you shouldn't be able to maintain compatibility without re-architecting a system provided you support some sort of virtual layer for um, for application components. I mean, that's exactly what uh, Apple did for a while with Rosetta. So um, it's not it's the approach they take about not changing anything or, or maintaining backup compatibility is not something that's desperately needed it's i think that's just a, a kind of a shortcut for excusing it really i i i sometimes wonder what dis, what dis, the decision process are without with inside microsoft because some of the things they come on with are so bizarre that um it's difficult to understand exactly whether there's a real logic behind it or not but it, I, yeah, so, I don't know so so you're a parallel you you're obviously um a parallels beta user so you Use Parallels. Are you running Windows 7 mostly at the moment? Yep. Yeah, I had um, hung on to Windows XP at, at uh, work for a while because I was waiting to get a, a license for it, but I got that. When did I get that? I think last summer or spring sometime. Right. Well, my, my virtual machine um, until recently was XP, but I I switched to a new Mac. I got a, a Mac Mini, um, a Core i5 Mac Mini with 8 gig of RAM in it. And um, I thought I'd try Windows 7. And, and with a machine of that sort of horsepower, Windows 7 actually runs just as fast as XP ever did under the latest versions of Parallels. So I've actually moved over to Windows 7, so I've got that little bit of extra compatibility with the work stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, Windows 7 is probably the best thing they've ever done, but it still has some real issues. And it still has this this thing that's always infuriates me about Windows, which is you set a system up and it works fine, and then after about six months, it just starts to slow down, and you know it just kind of you know everything starts taking longer and longer, and you end up having to blow the thing away and starting again. Uh, and I I see that on our work Windows laptops, and I'm starting to see this with the VM now. Um, I'm just wondering if that's something you you encounter on a regular basis. Um. Not really. No. I, I mean, from from the start, I I use um, what is it, CCleaner and Glary Utilities to flush out, you know, various registry entries and things on a monthly basis. And I I can't say that I've experienced any kind of bloated slowdowns. So that's the trick is to do that regular under the hood maintenance. Yeah. Are you kind I mean, of... That's that's. One thing that really hampers Windows is they still haven't been able to get rid of the registry. Yeah, and and the thing is, if if third parties can make utilities to do that, you wonder why Microsoft can't build it into the system. Yeah, they've got an optimization thing built in. Why not a registry maintenance tool? Yeah, I I I, I mean, mean I I don't know how much of it is just the registry, or I I think you know the way their system is architected is so object orientated that it causes problems you know that the, you have these things called dlls the dynamic link libraries and it's 
it's fairly easy for those to end up in multiple places. And I think if those start the conflict, then you can have all sorts of problems in terms of performance. And I think it's the registry that ties an awful lot of that stuff together. And if you've got some, you know, incorrect registry entries, and, and, and like I said, I do it on a monthly basis, and and it finds dozens of problems every month. And I'm not, you know, installing and uninstalling software all the time. I'm just using yeah. the thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. So obviously Windows 8 is coming. I wonder if they will get an opportunity to deal with that in this next version. Hard to tell because they're not saying an awful lot about what Windows 8 is going to entail. Um, the little bit that I've looked at it, it looks kind of like Windows 7, but you can, um, rather than go into the whole normal Windows GUI, there's that Metro thing that it kind of starts out with. Yeah. It starts into that, and if you want to go to the, the normal desktop you have to get out of metro to go to it so it's it's kind of like having um this is a gross over the simplification but it's kind of like having uh, an ios device an ios operating system and a desktop operating system all kind of lumped together in the same machine and you switch from one to the other well it, it to me kind of looks like if you started up on Lion straight into Launchpad or something. I right. mean, it's a little different with those tiles and things, but that basic idea. Okay. All right. So it's kind of a it's a different way of presenting the same information. Now, I, I know that they're making major architectural changes under the hood for this one. Um, but the way that applications will be developed, they're jettisoning a lot of historical uh, application frameworks and, and development environments in order to kind of bring this this new uh, interface, this Metro interface. And for I, I would imagine most of our listeners will, will kind of be familiar with, with what we mean by that. But um, for anybody who, who isn't or doesn't recognize the term, uh, Metro is Microsoft's catch-all name for this kind of new user interface they built for originally for Windows Phone. So it is kind of, um, it uses these big floating, uh, it, it kind of looks like, it always reminds me actually of, uh, you know, when an Apple TV goes into screensaver mode and it floats pictures up over the screen. Windows 7, uh, Windows um, Metro kind of looks a little bit like that. Uh, basically everything is uh, kind of a big functional floating pane um, and you can swipe between them and, and get, get to different things. And it can present four or five different live bits of information on the same screen in, in actually quite a nice way um, using this Metro interface. And, the idea behind Windows 8 is this will very much come to the fore uh, and will be the uh, be the, the primary interface for Windows going forward. What I don't understand with with um, Windows 8, Tom, is is once you get get into an application, what does it look like then? Do you end up going back to menus and toolbars and kind of the the, the thing that that Windows has always looked like, or are the applications themselves going to be all different? I don't really know. I haven't played with it that much. Yeah. Um, I tried to install it within Parallels when the developer release came out, but it wasn't quite compatible with it yet. And I just haven't gotten back to it. Right. Okay. So um, this week, well, as we record over in Barcelona, they are starting uh, Mobile World Congress. Um, and it is believed that Microsoft are, are, are not only, not only are they present at that show, 
um, but they will be making some announcements about Windows 8 um, at that show. Steven Snofsky, who heads up the Windows division, is in Barcelona. Um, and I would imagine he's there because Nokia are there. Nokia and Microsoft now have this big partnership and there will be some presumably mobile announcements. But it, it does look like they're going to be um, talking a little bit more about Windows 8, particularly on, on tablet devices. And uh, I believe that there's a con what they call a consumer preview coming out at the end of the week that's going to get effectively this like the first beta version. So this will be the first time we see kind of more production-ready code of the uh, of the product. So uh, hopefully that will be supported in parallels at some point and we can we can have a good look at it, Tom, because it will be something we'll need to know about going forward. Definitely. Um, it's interesting, this whole ARM thing. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, Steven Sanofsky blogged about it. This, this guy is, he's, I don't know whether he's actually writing these things, but he has a blog on uh, Microsoft's site, and he's famous for posting these extremely lengthy, detailed technical articles talking about the process of developing and building Windows 8. Uh, and uh, he issued one a couple of weeks ago that was the first time we got any real information about what's called Windows on ARM or WOA. Um, and this is their uh, iPad competitor play um, for, by all accounts. The idea is, is that they will recompile Windows 8 so that it works on ARM processors. ARM is obviously the, um, the chip that, that's in the iPad. Um, but don't get excited. doesn't mean your iPad's going to be able to run Windows, if that's what your bag is. Uh, ARM is a processor um, designer, and it designs processors for pretty much everybody on a custom basis, then gives them the designs and say, right, you go away and manufacture it. So I believe there will be a different ARM design going into the Windows on ARM tablets. But the idea is, is that you will be able to run a version of Windows um, on a tablet that's kind of an iPad-like device, and um, it will be Windows 8, the same as Windows 8 on a, on an Intel machine, except when you look behind the curtain, you find out it's not. <laughs> it's not actually Windows. It's Windows 8, and it looks and will function like Windows 8, but it's not code compatible with Windows 8 on the PC. Right, just like the um, Intel and PowerPC versions of Mac OS X weren't code compatible. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there's not going to be a um, a Rosetta-like layer to... Uh, they were very clear about this, and, and this was the one of the big questions that people had before um, before they announced um, the details of Windows on ARM. Um, they were very clear that there's no kind of emulation layer that allows you to run Intel code on Windows 8 for ARM. So uh, you were, even though the, the things may look the same, and we remains to be seen how closely they actually look the same, um, you will not be able to take uh, any historical um, Windows application and run it on their tablet devices. They say that for reasons of power and um, chip compatibility and everything, that that's just not technically possible. Uh, what you will be able to do is if you write new code, a new application, you will apparently be able to um, tick a box in the compiler when you compile it from their development studio and uh, be able to produce a windows arm compatible binary that you can then sell through their uh, app store um, all the windows and arm stuff will be like the apple app store and they'll be all fully locked down and tied into their platform um but so i guess going forward that will that will give them a kind of a, a potential advantage over um the uh, mac ios ecosystem in that 
you'll be able to de develop potentially develop once and run it and run it anywhere but you won't be able to run um older historical windows software on on the ipad on the ipad like devices that are producing um which i kind of understand but <laughs> I, what i don't get um and and maybe you've got a different perspective on this tom is the whole uh, Windows desktop thing that they're supporting in Windows on ARM. Did yeah, you... I was just going to bring that up. Um, <laughs> I think, I think the uh, ARM applications are limited, with the exception of um, the version of Office they're going to produce. The ARM applications, I believe, are limited to the Metro interface only, and not the Windows eight desktop. Yeah. That's that's my understanding too. So, um, effectively, you're talking about, um, uh, for want of a better word, iOS style applications, without, right? Uh, without, you know, which which makes sense for a tablet. You wouldn't want to, and and I, <laughs> I have tried doing this because I've had many PC tablet devices in the past. It doesn't really work using a touch interface with um, the Windows furniture that you get on Windows Seven today. Um, all the controls are too small, they're too difficult to hit, they're too imprecise. Um, and the way Windows is kind of laid out just doesn't really make sense for if you're touching the screen. It, it only really makes sense if you're moving a point around with a mouse. So I can understand them saying, well, that's not a good thing to do. Uh, and stopping people from doing that on these tablet devices. What I then don't understand is why they've even put a desktop in there and then have a some kind of version of office that's going to run inside that desktop it and and that and and they have, I think they've got internet explorer in there as well and uh, a kind of, kind of a file manager that looks like the windows explorer today um in on these tablet devices and and I, <laughs> I don't I don't get the logic of that <laughs> it's like well either you go to something that's touch optimized and and has this you know groovy new interface or you don't. What what seems to me what you don't do is put some of your potentially biggest applications in, in a shell that's not going to be optimized for that environment. Right. I mean, there's even some products you can get for the iPad that um, a service you can sign up for. One of them is called OnLive Desktop. Uh, another one is called Nevio, where you can um, you virtually connect to a Windows 7 system and run it from your iPad. And with these services, you can basically subscribe to be able to use Office and other things. And with a Windows, a normal Windows 7 interface, which, you know, like you were saying, isn't really totally made for being, you know, touched with your fingers. Yeah. Uh, and and it, that is more, it's more if you think about how how the iPad works it's more than just where you touch how big the targets are and what the how the controls operate uh, it's about you know what what how, how you access things like a right click you know if, if you're using something like LogMeIn Pro or LogMeIn Connect to access a um, a Windows system remotely or you're using one of these virtual desktop services that you just mentioned then they have to come up with some kind of hacks to try and allow you to uh, simulate a mouse using your finger to allow to, you to do things like right clicks uh, and drag and drop and that sort of thing, which the iPad as a natural device does a different way because it's been optimized for touch. 
Um, mm-hmm. And those those kind of hacks, those kind of shortcuts that let you do those things, they're really kind of tough. And and I I've used um I I've not I've not used uh, on my desktop. But I use the other ones, at Cloud On or whatever it is. Anyway, um, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if that's the exact name. Um, I'll I'll look it up while we're while we're talking. Um, but there is another one that that has the same sort of deal. It's a virtual desktop running office. Um, and and I found if I put one of our um, business templates into that, uh, getting files into and out of these VDIs is, is a real pain, actually. But I, I use Dropbox to upload something to that that has our standard templates with all our headers and footers and our corporate styles and everything in to see whether I could actually create a full business document using this system. And I found that some of the macros we use needed combinations of right clicks and menu commands that were just virtually impossible I was, it was like i was playing twister with my fingers they were just virtually impossible to achieve using this interface that the uh, developer was giving me giving me now i would imagine for um office on windows on arm that microsoft is going to have to have a crack at dealing with those and fixing those but then it becomes different then i mean I, this is this is notionally the way it's been painted is that um, on ARM, you'll get a, a Windows desktop that has some version of Office in it. Um, and this version of Office will be compatible um, on similar to the version you get on a Windows 8 desktop PC or a Windows 8 laptop You're running an Intel chip. And at that point, you start thinking, well, hang on, who who gets to compromise? <laughs> you know, do the Intel guys get um, kind of a dumbed-down interface because they're running, they want to run the same code on ARM? Um, or do the ARM guys get something that needs Twister for the fingers because it's co-compatible with the Intel version and it's just a recompile? And and once you start kind of thinking about how they might solve these issues, bearing in mind this is a company that we know for a fact um, has been accused in the past of doing things by committee and, and uh, not taking bold enough steps to actually achieve what they want to achieve, you know, it really starts to worry me that, that this decision is actually... Um, you know, it's kind of it's misguided and could really undercut their efforts to try and produce a credible tablet competitor. I don't know what you think. I think that the Office versions are probably going to end up similar to what Apple's done with iWork, where, um, say, Pages, for example, Pages on the Mac versus Pages on iOS is not a hundred percent compatible but they can read each other's things and pages is obviously simplified for the touch interface. That's, and and that's the way it could go. And that's the way, certainly that's probably the easiest way for them to solve these problems. But of course, then you lose that competitive advantage of it all being the same software. You know, I, I, I've used plenty of applications that are meant to be, code compatible between different versions of office documents including um office for windows 2010 and microsoft office for mac 2011 and they're code compatible about 98 percent of the time but when it goes wrong it goes horrifically wrong and i've seen that between the mac and the windows versions of office particularly with it's not so bad with word they put a lot of a lot of effort into making word files kind of really move everywhere properly but with um PowerPoint in particular, PowerPoint can be terrible. Um, if I round trip one of our corporate PowerPoint files from um, PowerPoint for Windows to PowerPoint for Mac and back again, 
um, it can completely destroy it depending on what exactly I do. Um, and if you end up with that situation between uh, an ARM Windows and ARM tablet running Windows 8 and a PC tablet running Windows 8 or a PC laptop running Windows 8 um, and whatever the versions of Office are, if that if that happens and you can't rely on it being completely um, an excellent user experience, then what <laughs> what the heck was all the point? Exactly. I'm, I'm, let me be clear here. I'm really not. I really would like this pl this platform to succeed. Um, because I do think, you know, I, I, I do think we can't have um, the iOS. People will talk about the iOS devices and particularly the iPad being a, a market segment of their own. I think they do need competition just to keep them honest, keep them straight and keep them innovating. Um, so I would like to see Windows 8 become something that, that's a credible competitor to the iPad. But everything I hear at the moment, and I, and I really hope that I'm completely wrong, Everything I at the moment reminds me of some of the things we heard, you know, before the HP touchpad came out or before the BlackBerry playbook came out where the strategy was so unclear and it sounded like it was being changed on a day by day basis. And then when the products actually launched, they were rubbish. Well, you read my mind. I was just going to bring up HP. Um, one thing it sounds like Microsoft is going to do is actually stick with it. But on the flip side, the window of opportunity is even more closed than it was when HP came out with the touchpad and HP didn't stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the iPad really has got even more of a stranglehold on the market. Um, they've got a new device launching presumably in the next month or two. Um, it's very, very unlikely that um, that will do anything except increase their, their sales further. Um, and um, well, I mean, these devices we're talking about, these Windows devices we're talking about, we're not even going to see them running working code on working hardware until the latter half of this year, by which time, um, you know, Apple will have again had the whole whole summer to build build up the market share for the iPad 3. Um, yep. I would imagine the iPad 2 is going to stay around as well. Um, that tends to be the way they roll. So, um, uh, and of course, one thing at Apple is, <laughs> you know, is is very good at for uh, iOS devices is is keeping certainly the previous version around and, and compatible and, and working. I'm still running an iPad 1 and um, there's not many things that, that, that it can't do compared to the iPad 2 at the moment, um, provided you're not relying on the, on the hardware differences. So, um, yeah, it, it does it does look like a risky play, certainly. Um, whether they pull it off or not remains to be seen, but it, it certainly seems to be a high-risk strategy. Excuse me, madam. Have you ever heard any podcasts that are just too long? They're all too long. Ah, but that's where you're wrong. Listen to the new App Minute with John Nemo. It's short, it's sweet, it'll knock you off your feet. Well, an interesting side story to this whole thing is the flap over the... Uh seemingly inevitable microsoft office for ipad yeah well i i think that that you know that the excitement over that on the day that came out i actually mentioned it to a guy i was sitting in a meeting with saw it come up on my um on my rss reader and uh i actually mentioned it i said oh there's there's pictures going around of a version of office for the ipad and he got super excited because he's really trying very hard not to use a corporate laptop but to use his iPad for everything 
because he finds it so convenient and he loves the fact that he gets the, a 12 hour battery life out of the device so he can actually use it for a, a you know a really long extended working day when he's traveling and so he was, yeah, he was really thrilled about the prospect of that. He was very, very excited. I would imagine, I've not seen him since, but I would imagine he's very disappointed by some of the cold water that has apparently been poured on that. Um, and again, it Well, they be... have to with Mobile World Congress coming up and all that. They have to hold off on it. Well, yeah, but it, I mean, it remains to be seen. It would be typical Microsoft not to launch that because uh, it would cannibalize Windows 8 sales. Or potential Windows 8 sales. Um, obviously, one of their big um, one of their big markets is the enterprise, and I I would imagine they are mildly concerned that the iPad has managed to, you know, do what the iPhone didn't and never really did, which is is move into the enterprise space uh, and become an enterprise tool. And and I I'm completely believe that 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 is true. Now I go to a lot of you know, big trade conferences in the computing industry uh, and everyone has an iPad and these are the IT professionals in the companies. So um, they are, you know, they are they are definitely using them as not as primary devices, but as secondary portable computing devices. And that means they are moving steadily into the enterprise and the more functional they become for corporate computing, then the, the more embedded they're going to be because they're a lot easier to manage than a PC. Um, what do you see as enterprise phones over there? Well, that that's interesting. Up until probably about eight, nine months ago, there was an awful lot of BlackBerry. Um, and I would say BlackBerry was probably the dominant corporate platform. You are seeing a lot of iPhones now. Um, but what's happening is that companies are um, they're moving away from effectively providing you with a corporate phone and what they're doing is they're because the, the the problem of phone management has become so vast now um and the real problem for any company around phone management is is reducing cost and they don't want to be dealing with complicated smartphones that, that require lots lots of overhead so what companies are doing are saying well we're going to offer basic services to, to all sorts of phones uh, and we'll allow users to bring their own devices and we'll just pay them. We'll either pay them a subsidy towards their own bill or we'll just pick up the, the tab for their contract. But what, what companies, in it's certainly in the UK, are, are not wanting to do now is um, get in a situation where they're taking on a big corporate contract from Vodafone or T-Mobile or O2 or whatever um, and then managing the supply of phones under that contract because it's just it just costs them too much it's a huge support overhead i've i've been to organ, public sector organizations who have a dedicated team of five or six people just looking after mobile telephony and they just can't afford to do that in you know we've we've, we've got a real austerity crunch here in the public sector um and public sector spending has really been cut back and that's one of the things that's going away so you know organizations are now saying well we'll look at who needs a phone and then if they need a phone, we'll give them fifteen, twenty pounds a month towards that, and then we know that's all we have to spend on it, and nothing more. So um, that's allowing the iPhone to really take off, because obviously, if people are choosing their own phone, they're often choosing the iPhone. That's what I'm seeing over here is something similar. Um, I have a, a brother-in-law who is the uh, he's a director of 
telecommunications for a major healthcare firm. And it, it's not his job to pick mobile phones. He handles like the call centers and things like that. But their company um, allows people to um, choose their own phone and they get a, a monthly allowance towards their um, cell bill. Yeah. And, you know, that does allow people to, to pick an iPhone. I actually think a lot of people, um, a lot of users who find themselves in this situation quite like it because it does allow them to choose what they want to have, um, to make the choices they want. You know, you will get a small number of people who, who are anti-iPhone and will go with something else, or they'll like the fact they can get a cheaper Google phone or a, a candy bar phone or something like that and pocket the difference. And that's fine, you know, that's... um. That's fine. My my perception here is that when you look around, you see a heck of a lot of iPhones. Um, and uh, you see fewer of the Google devices, but still quite a lot of them. Um, and you often, you you know, you can do a bit of kind of social inference from that when you when you look at the people who you might see with a with a, a google phone that um those are people who maybe had a little bit less money to spend or maybe somebody was buying it for them and um you know said oh well this looks just as good as the iphone you see a lot of children with um google phones rather than iphones because the iphone is you know I, with kids i think the iphone kind of it does work against the the child market in that parents perceive them as expensive and so they're a kind of a tough gift to give to kids, whereas a, a cheaper phone, you know, parents do often want their kids to have a phone so they can keep in touch with them. Uh, a cheaper phone is all, is all, sometimes a better play when it, when it's the parents spending the money, <laughs> you know. Well, that kind of brings up my own phone choice from this past fall. Um, I got an iPhone 4S on launch day, um, but my thinking on what to do went on for, for months before that, where I was looking at different phones, how much the phone costs, how much the plan cost, and what it all boiled down to was um, a choice between um, an Android phone with Virgin Mobile USA, where the phone was a little bit less expensive than the iPhone, but the plan was literally half what I ended up spending with AT&T, um, you know, that's one choice. And the other choice, of course, was the iPhone with AT&T. And it basically boiled down to, I can spend more on a monthly basis and have a phone that I know isn't going to drive me crazy or spend less and have a phone that is probably going to drive me up the wall. Yeah. I mean, it is, it, the psychology is interesting because obviously what you have to drop up front on the phone is a fraction of what you'll spend on an 80 dollars contract. And so, you know, looking at the plan, that's exactly what you should do. You should figure out, you know, what the plan costs are uh, and, uh, and you know, figure out whether that works for you or not. In the UK, it's interesting in that um, our, 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 tele our mobile telephony prices are a fair bit cheaper than the state's. Our market is a because we're a smaller market. It's a bit more competitive, and we also have stronger regulation here than you have in the states for the mobile markets. Because we not only have our own internal regulator in in the UK, but also we have European regulation. So the companies can get away with a little bit less, and that drives prices down. Um, 
my my wife uh, my wife has a 3GS for instance that's one of my old handsets but uh, is on a is on an iPhone contract and I think we're paying 20 pounds a month for that so about 35 dollars and that gives her unlimited everything unlimited data unlimited text um about a thousand minutes of voice calls a month which she never uses and I know a contract like that in the states would be a lot more expensive probably about 80 90 dollars it is so, yeah so. well also you guys for the minutes it's only the caller that pays gets that's charged. right yeah we, we don't pay we don't pay incoming call minutes well so. yeah <laughs> here both parties get charged minutes yeah. and that just you know i mean it's you compare what how it works in the uk and how it works in the united states and well, we're getting the shaft on this side of the pond. Yeah, but about the only thing in the in uh, UK cellular that costs a lot of money is international roaming. Um, that still is very expensive. But everything else is is pretty cheap, really. Um, and obviously, you know, it's a much smaller place, so the the density of cell coverage is 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 pretty good too. You know, certainly around the built around the built up areas and the way the country's laid out. You know, there are vast corridors between you know London going north. You know, there's the northwest corridor that goes up to Birmingham, then up, up here where I live. And then there's a, an east coast corridor that goes up the other side as well. And if you stay within those, um, you know, until you get up to Scot Scotland, really, then you, you'll you have pretty good coverage most of the way. Um, so uh, for, for data as well as voice. So, you know, you're you're in a pretty good condition there. Uh, so it, it just got, <coughs> just got to show what a difference you know, real competition and a, and a kind of regulatory oversight can make. Um, but going going kind of back to the point about, you know, this does allow people to choose what they want. You know, it's a market where people can choose what they want if, they, if they're getting a corporate device um, and change them when they want and, you know, kind of all, all of that good stuff. Uh, and that, that does really help. And that has, a, has allowed the iPhone to get into um, corporate spaces. I see a lot of corporate people with them but obviously those devices aren't being managed by um the uh the person who's funding it they they're basically they're being bring your own so they're not helping corporate adoption of ios they're, they're, they're kind of there by default really but they're not actually used to do business apart from make calls and a bit of email whereas the ipad is different the ipad is really starting to be used as a as an it tool now um, and as a computing tool by a lot of lot of companies and <coughs> excuse me going back to going back to the original point about office uh, I do wonder if if Microsoft will try and stem that a little bit by holding back office for the iPad even though you know it's it's a huge market form and the 56 million devices probably I would say 60 70 percent of those would end up buying it if you released it but I wonder if they'll try and differentiate Windows 8 for arm by making that the only place you can get um, Office on a tablet. They might do that, but the sheer dominance of the iPad, I don't know that they can get away with it. And in clearly those photos that the, um, what was it? It was, it was the Daily. That's who had it. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly that's real. Those don't look Photoshopped. Yeah, they, look, they did look pretty good. But, yeah, but just I, the fact, you know... Yeah. If, if if following Apple has told us anything, it's just the fact that something exists doesn't mean it'll ever get released. <laughs> That's true. I mean, look at uh, oh, what's the 
there was a the PDA that they almost released back in the it was what the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I mean, they've. They've. Yeah. They've. They've done that. Done that many times, and every now and again, these prototypes turn up on eBay, and you realize, um, you know, how how close they might have gotten to to doing it. Um. But so yeah, it'll be interesting. I. I the the problem for me is that um, is that I do see Microsoft. I could see them, kind of, developing the thing and then not releasing it. Uh, and uh, from a personal point of view, I, that that would, you know, I'd like to have Office on my iPad. I really would. I, I use um, what's the one I use for uh, Office documents? Documents to go, premium, uh, on my iPad, and it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty good. If you've got an established document and you want to make changes to it without messing the formatting up, right. certainly for a Word document, it, it's pretty good. Um, but it it doesn't look very nice. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty functional, and you still have to do stuff to the documents after you send them back. It doesn't it doesn't pick up the styles list from the document. So um, I mentioned we use a lot of corporate styles to make sure our documents always look the same. So if I know if I edit a document on uh, my iPad, then I will need to do some work on it on a PC before I can send it out to people. Um, and I probably yeah I probably could with a bit of effort build a pages template that look broadly similar, but um, it would take a bit of work. Well, and Pages can open Word documents in and just like with you were saying with Documents Go and there's other ones like Quick Office and Office Square. Well, they will open Word documents, but not quite right. Yeah. Well, the the other thing as well is that um, I mean, this is an interesting point as well for the the difference between Windows on ARM and uh, Windows on Intel. Uh, sorry, Office on ARM and in Office on Intel. In in our company, we've got a lot of custom macros that do particular things uh, in a certain way. If we want to put a table into our documents. We have to use the macro because that formats them for our corporate style. If we want to put a um, a reference or a comment on an image, we have to use the corporate style, and that's done via macro. And then we've got a lot of you know custom body text, like office locations and uh, rates and things like that. They're all centrally managed by the macros, so you just kind of click the button and then they go into the document. You don't need to worry about what the latest data is, because it's always been centrally updated. Now... One, that's one of the things that holds me back even on the Mac on writing documents, uh, corporate documents. I will often have to start the document on a PC to get the template right, then work on it on the Mac, but then do some post-processing on a PC to make sure that it fits with our corporate style. Will a macro written on the Intel version of Office for Windows 8 work on the ARM version? Well, I'm guessing that it... It wouldn't necessarily if you're having that much trouble between the Mac and PC versions. Yeah. this is, I mean, for, for a while, Visual Basic for applications actually disappeared from the Mac version of Office. And there was, there, that was one where there were so many complaints that they actually brought it back. Um, but they're still, they're still different. I can't pick up those macros and uh, codes and, and get them working in the, in the Mac version to uh, any level of satisfaction. So those those are the things that can kind of really kill um, people's real sort of trust in the compatibility of of a product like that. I think you know the ability to do stuff like that. Um, 
it'd be interesting to see exactly how Microsoft approaches that. And we, you know, we are kind of supposing a lot here because there's a lot of lot of a lot of questions that haven't yet been answered, even by people who follow Microsoft pretty closely. Yeah, and it's you know, as long as it's gonna take for these Windows 8 ARM tablets to come out, these questions are gonna be around for a long time. Yeah. They they certainly have a hill to climb. Like I say, I do I do wish them luck with it because much like WebOS, I, I, I think that Windows 8 is a platform the Metro interface is a is a it's a thing that deserves to succeed because it is good and it is different. It's not like um Google Android, which is a pretty shallow ripoff of the iPhone. It is an attempt to do something different, and I, I think innovation like that deserves to move forward rather than, than just die. And it's interesting. I mean, there's still the looming thing with WebOS, and they made it open source, and is that going to make a comeback? And I don't know. I it's Everything yeah. outside of iOS is... Um, it's just so much in flux and not settled. That's right. Um, I I guess I guess that's a result of the fact that people don't really. I let's face it. Nobody ever thought the iPad was going to succeed before it came out. <laughs> Even quite a few in the in the uh, you know the in the Apple industry kind of thought, oh you know this is going to be a tough play. I don't think anybody expected the uh, success that they they had with it. So I guess it's kind of like lightning in a bottle. A lot of people don't really understand how it happened. Um, and well, even further back, I remember when the first iPod came out, I thought that was going to be a dud. Yeah. Yeah. I, all this, I mean, it's true. I had, I had several different uh, non-Apple MP3 players. And then when uh, the first, the first iPod I had was a shuffle, actually the first generation shuffle. And really, once I kind of got my head around how iTunes allowed you to really synchronize and manage the music, I mean, that was it. It was like, well, why would I ever run any of these other things? You know, I did the Sony thing where, you know, you had an arcane bit of software that crashed an awful lot and DRM'd all the files and put all these, was slow and clunky and put all these restrictions on what you could and couldn't do with your MP3 player. Um, and when I when you come, came along to iTunes and iPod, it was just like night and day and... and you know that was that was the thing that kind of did it for me, really. Um, I suppose uh, I suppose iOS has had a had a similar sort of trail in terms of you know how they've they've done the App Store and and uh, opened up the market to developers and that sort of thing. But really, you know, you you do wonder if, if I, I guess Microsoft tried exactly the same thing with the Zoom, didn't they? They pretty much ate the iPod model virtually to a T, uh, and the thing still died <laughs> well, plus subscriptions yeah yeah so that that's right uh, i've forgotten about those so but, but, um, well, see they were so late to the game i mean just like they're gonna be with the windows 8 tablet and just like um hp kind of was with the touchpad and yeah i i guess the only difference is that um is whether the volume the you know the grip that apple has on on the tablet market, such it, such as it is, is big enough to to not allow anyone else to get any oxygen. Um, it it is it's pretty monstrous, but you you have to wonder if if 
if the tablet market truly is the new, the future of computing, then the potential market is is in the billions, not in the millions. Um, and in in compare, I mean, in comparison to the number of PCs sold last year, the number of iPads sold is still a much smaller number. So, if if you're talking about the PC market as a whole rather than the iPad, um, then perhaps there's still enough room for Microsoft to make some space um, and, and grab some share. Uh, and really, I mean, that's the key thing is to, you know, really grab some, some share early and show that the, the thing has enough promise to keep, keep going with it. And Microsoft also have much deeper pockets than HP did, I think. I mean, let's be honest, HP killed the touchpad far too early. Um, totally. I mean, the, it, it's Tim laid out the perfect scenario for what they should have done. Yeah, the the uh, the um, the the platform that probably should have been killed sooner is the playbook. To be honest, um, it's only just been updated to fix a lot of the problems that that it had when it first came out. That would, if I if that was a, a baby that needed knifing, I would have said that one would have uh, would have needed killing sooner, really, um, because you yeah. know they they they're just bleeding money on that. But let's face it, Microsoft has very very deep pockets. Um, and is able to subsidize. Look how, look how. I mean, they flogged it. They flogged away at the X- Xbox for the first gen, and then the the early years of the second gen for about about eight years, and many billions of dollars, and a huge warranty recall as well. Um, before that platform really became established, to the point it is today. So uh, they can afford to really plug away at something if uh, if they if they feel it's worthwhile. It's just whether they whether they think it's worthwhile or not. Well, and, and looking at the BlackBerry Playbook, their their new software just now put email on it, but that email doesn't work with the BlackBerry system. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the, the I biggest think... <laughs> legacy that the BlackBerry Playbook is going to have is that it essentially gave birth to the Amazon Kindle Fire. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I mean, if Mike, if you accuse Microsoft of making decisions by committee, um. I think, I think with with, uh, with rim over the border there up there in Canada, you have to accuse them of making decisions by Super Eight Ball or something. I mean, it just really is, you know, uh, completely incomprehensible how they've got themselves into the into this position. But it, I think, in some ways, it is a sobering reminder to um, all of us who are who are fans of of the Macintosh and, and Apple in that you know no. No matter how dominant a company is, no company is too big to fall by the wayside if they start making bad decisions. And you know, I'm actually surprised Rim is still in business, and and I I do wonder if they'll still be around in two three years time. But um, I it just goes to show you can have a truly innovative and a market leading product, and I don't think anyone would deny the BlackBerry was certainly that for a time. But that doesn't mean you can't uh, let it all drip away if you're not careful. Right. And, and I agree. I don't think RIM is going to be around, you know, to see the turn into the next decade. But, you know, kind of the interesting thing, we also might be starting to see the decline of Microsoft. Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, anything's on the cards. I don't think at the beginning of this decade, sorry, the beginning of the last decade, obviously, if you just said to Microsoft, Oh well, by the end of this decade, Apple will will be you know will be beating you on mark on the market capitalization if nothing else. I don't think anybody would have taken that seriously, 
And yet that's exactly what happened. Um, I do find it interesting with Microsoft in that despite the fact that um, you would think from history and everything that, that Apple would be their, their big worry, they're much more, they appear to be much more worried about Google than, uh, than Apple. You know, I mean, for a long time, they just uh, they just pretended Apple wasn't even there, you know, and they just never talked about them. It was just like a, it was like a, you know, an elephant in the room that they never they never accepted. Now at least they they do kind of ex- um, accept that. But you know, even now, you talk to you hear quotes from Steve Ballmer about um, Apple, and he kind of he talks about them like they're irrelevant, when uh, when clearly they're not, and clearly you know they are cresting they are they appear to be cresting a wave about redefining what computing is you well know? on the on the pc side of things microsoft still needs apple to avoid antitrust i mean a- a- apple could have been put out of its misery by microsoft back in the you know mid to late 90s but microsoft you know gave the old photo confidence and all that stuff and you know, did everything they could to avoid killing Apple because they needed them for antitrust reasons. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I just I just wish that sometimes the rest of the industry would step up a little bit more and, and be more innovative. I'm not talking about just Microsoft. I'm talking about, you know, the hardware manufacturers. You know, we just had a couple of months ago CES where, where basically there was a whole load of uh, computer manufacturers who are, who are making variations on the theme of macbook air and you know you just want every now and again you just want somebody else in the industry to come up with something truly innovative and left field that nobody's considered before and surprise everyone including apple because the i think the industry uh and and the you know the kind of the the market for for technology which is what this show is all about would be more interesting if more people were doing more innovative things than just one or two players in the market. And I think Microsoft is trying to do that with Metro. A lot of that Metro stuff kind of grew out of what they were doing with the touch versions of the Zoom. Um, But I don't know that they're necessarily hitting all the right buttons, so to speak. I think part of the problem that Microsoft sometimes faces is that um, the... The way their products are designed and built and then the way they're marketed are those are kind of there's two or three separate processes there and they've all got to work in order to make the products a success and um you know sometimes the business side kills very good engineering i mean winfs the file system they tried to bring into um into what became vista is a good example of that you know this was something that was innovative and new um, but once it got out of the engineering part and into more like the, you know, how do we how do we build this into into the business model? It got killed. Um, and then there's been plenty of times where Microsoft has had technically good products that just haven't been marketed well, or marketed to the wrong people, and therefore haven't done well. So um, you know that all of those things need to kind of all of those planets need to align really for Microsoft to be truly successful with uh, with Windows Eight and. Um, I hope they're clear enough internally about what's required to actually make that happen because I think I think as an industry we need more than just iPads. You know, so um it'll be interesting to see where that one goes really. And uh gonna be a, a 
an interesting year. Definitely will be trying to get hold of that uh, consumer preview and, and see if I can get that up and running. And kind of the sad thing, looking back a little further to the HP thing again, is looking at um, Windows 8 and looking at iOS and looking at WebOS, um, you know, WebOS aside between Windows and, or, or iOS aside between um, Windows 8 for ARM and WebOS, WebOS looked like it had more potential. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, really, Palm Palm was another company that they did too little too late. You know, that there were men. I remember, I used to, I used to use Palm PDAs all the time. And I remember for many years, from, I guess from Palm OS 3.5 or something onwards, everyone was kind of saying, well, when are you going to, when are you going to bring it up to date? You know, when are you going to bring it forward? It was kind of like a BlackBerry sort of deal, really. Exactly. You know, the um, the last P Palm PDA I had had real problems talking to um, talking to a network. It was really clunky. The browsing on the things were all was always terrible, um, and it was because the underlying platform just wasn't strong enough, and they didn't seem able to create a new device and a new operating system that worked together. That was good enough and eventually what happened is that um sales dropped so much that they they got sold and um you know web os was then was then kind of on the way but again it was a case of too little too late HP it even got it, it won best of the first palm pre won best of ces for what was that 2009 yeah yeah it definitely yeah it definitely it definitely is a later yeah, it definitely would have been a strong contender, but um, had had they stuck with it, I'm sure they'd have put more effort to it. Now, where it is as an as an open source product, it seems to be really hard for open source to make, um, you know, to get turned into something that that really is is a as a big commercial success. It's very very difficult for uh, open source to do that, principally because right. a lot of people in the open source movement who kind of you know, they're a little bit, they seem to resent commercial exploitation of open source software um, and kind of fight against it. You know, whenever somebody says, oh, we're going to do a commercial version of this based on open source code, you immediately get a, 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 you know, a big fight on the internet and then it gets forked and something like that. And, you know, um, of course, all of that then <laughs> destroys people's faith in, in the potential. Um, I, it's hard to see. WebOS as an open source product becoming um, becoming you know a dominant player unless re a really big organization gets behind it. Like yeah, somebody like a Samsung would have to latch onto it for it to go anywhere. Yeah, or um, maybe or potentially Amazon if they found if they, you know if they found that the only way to fix some of the performance problems in the current Kindle Fire is to shift it to a different platform. And they could and do that easily time, enough. At one time, Amazon. When when HP had WebOS up for sale before they open sourced it, Amazon was rumored to buy it. Yeah, yeah, that would have been interesting. But I guess Amazon decided at the end of the day that they were a retailer and not, uh, <laughs> you know, didn't want to get too far into uh, design and design and uh, and development of, of that sort of product. And and you're right about open source and commercial success. I mean, the only one that I can think of that is an open source for the most part product and as a commercial success is android yeah 
and and that's because you know it's still android is kind of it, it is open source but it isn't you know it still has its principal uh developer and and supporter kind of in the wings but you know they're kind of it's a bit of an open source puppet there's still google in the wings pulling the strings right they never open sourced honeycomb no <laughs> yes <laughs> still haven't got around to that have they they, the, well, they're not is, going to. They went straight no. to ice cream sandwich. But has ice cream sandwich been properly open source now? Um, I think so, but I'm not exactly an Android expert. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I, you know, it's my personal feeling is that you know Google talks a good talk, uh, and I don't want to bag on Google particularly. You know, they're they're a commercial company. They're out there to make money just like anyone else. It's just their, their strategy and their marketing to talk about, you know, Android being an open source when it's not really, it's not really open source in the, in the, I think in the original definition of what open source was, uh, you know, because they will ruthlessly squash something that doesn't really fit with their, with their business model. It's um, not open source like Ubuntu. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I suspect it'll be interesting. Actually, we talk obviously we talked all about Windows Eight this episode, but clearly at, Mo- at Mobile World Congress, you would expect new uh, Android devices as well. So who knows? Maybe the the real capacity iPad is is sat on a shelf somewhere in Barcelona waiting to be launched this week. But I doubt. Well, <laughs> I don't know that it'll come from Android because it's such a diversified mess. Really, I mean, the uh, like. You know, a company will release a device and they might release some minor Android updates to it, but then they almost never give it the next major version. Whereas, you know, and and the carriers are, you know, have their fingers in that pie too. Whereas with iOS updates, you know, Apple pretty much has the final say across the board. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and even, even Microsoft with Windows Phone has been kind of beholden to the, um, beholden to the carriers and and the what the customizations they want to make to the phones uh, that's not been as smooth as i think we were all hoping before they launched windows phone where yeah all... they haven't been able to force it with windows phone 7 as much as they wanted to yeah definitely well it's been going to be interesting i mean you know one of the, one of the good things about me being in this game is that you know it is always changing and there's there's always new things to see and new things to play with which if you're a gadget hound like like uh, I am, then that's uh, that's always fun, but uh, difficult sometimes to read the tea leaves. But it's definitely going to be a kind of a landmark year for for tablets, one way or the other. Either um, you know, either Apple will consolidate to the point that that pretty much it's a non-starter, or, or we will see Windows 8 really kind of you know um, launch a launch a viable competitor. Be interesting to see. But um, Tom, thanks very much for giving me a bit of your time this afternoon to talk about it. It's been good to uh, talk it through with you. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, so um, before we go, if people want to follow up with you on uh, on Twitter or, or email or anything, where could, where could they go to get that? Oh, probably the single easiest way is, is Twitter. Uh, T-O-M-D-A-R and the number two. Pretty good. Uh, and I'm um, David B. Cohen on Twitter. So I'm going to put that on the end as well, and then hopefully we'll catch up with everyone next week. Thanks very much. Thank you.